The Word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the Word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our Saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's Word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to BromleyTownChurch.com. We're coming this morning to our fourth session on the book of Romans. And we've been looking at this book and we're going to continue to look in this book. I will confess to you right now, I'm not going to be here next week. Kevin is going to preach next week. And Kevin will be preaching from chapter 4. Now, that gives us a bit of a challenge as we're still in chapter 1, or just finished chapter 1. So this morning, we're going to move at a rather more, uh, not a sedate pace, we're going to move along, and we're going to get up to the end of chapter 3, not necessarily covering every verse and every angle, but we're going to look at some things. And I also want to just, just put a picture out there. Really, the angle that I am taking, I'm trying to unpack from this, is the understanding of where we are at as Christians in the light of what Paul is writing. You see, we've just taken communion, and there is this sense in which, here being Christians, we accept Jesus has done it for us, and we've received that. And there's nothing that we can do. It's all about Jesus. And having taken communion, we're, we're coming to that place, and we're saying, yes, Jesus has done it for us. Now, that is, that's, that's great news, and that's what Paul is trying to show, because at the beginning of this book, he states what the gospel is, and then going through, and we've been looking at it in the first chapter, he's showing exactly why we need to have this gospel, why people need to understand that it's all about Jesus. Now, you could say, well, we're here, we know that, so we don't want to hear that, so let's move on. Well, I say, well, yes, we can move on, but you see, there's something that we haven't quite grasped. It's not only about knowing that Jesus has done it all, it's about the quality of our relationship with him. And to have the quality of our relationship with him, we need to understand exactly why do we need this gospel. Because, you see, what I've noticed within myself, and I realize now I'm jumping a little bit in here, but that probably doesn't matter. What I've noticed within myself is that I am basically a good person. Now, Please, I don't want anybody to disagree, especially my wife or my daughter, because they know some faults, okay? But basically, the standing point I take in life is that I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. Right. You should have said that, but you did. You know, I, I, I lay, help old ladies across the street as and when, thank you, as and when that happens, and hopefully they wanted to go across the street in the first place. No, but here's the thing. What I notice is if I do something wrong, let's say... There are those sins that come upon us. We call them besetting sins. They're sins that each of us face. We think, okay, I've got over that. Lord, forgive me for that. But suddenly, oh, we do them again. We fall into those things. Like you might lose your temper. So let's say I've lost my temper at home. Very rare. (laughs) Forgive the merriment of the front row at this point, okay? Truth will out. Sometimes this happens. So you lose your temper, and you, you, at that point... Or maybe not immediately, because usually when you get cross, it's like oh, somebody else's fault, and then you work it through. That's the truth. Anyway, you come to that point, you oh, I shouldn't have done that. And so you feel bad. Okay, so you feel bad. Because the Holy Spirit is saying to you, hey, that's not the way that God wants you to behave. That's not the way I want you to behave. And so you feel bad. And so what do you do? You come to God, and you say, God, forgive me. Forgive me, because that's not the way I'm supposed to be behaving. That's not the way I'm supposed to be behaving. I don't want to be, I, I want to be right with you. Lord, forgive me. I didn't mean to lose my temper. I'm sorry. And it's almost like, okay, that's it. So you, 
I went to God to get the thing that I need from him, and now I can carry on leading my life and carry on, because I'm basically a good person. Now, it was during the night, or I don't know, I woke up early one morning this week, and suddenly this started coming through my mind, and I thought to myself, yeah, that is the problem. It's when we fall, we know, oh, that's it, I shouldn't have done that, oh, I feel wretched, out of God's prayer, you know, I, I need to come back to God, must say sorry, we say our sorries, we come back to God, okay, I've connected with God, okay, now that's all right again. And that was type of the attitude I, I have, if you like, it's almost, dare I say, it's almost a theology that we live by, without really realizing, it's a way of life. And I suddenly thought to myself, but that isn't what the Bible teaches. And you see, that's why we've been looking at what Romans is, is saying, what Paul is saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. Paul comes in at the level of saying, right, we've all messed up. Everybody has messed up. Every single person has messed up. Let me just find out where I am in these notes, because I know that I've just jumped a little bit here. That's right. The Bible has a different opinion to the one that I seem to hold in my mind. Basically, I'm good. Sometimes I do bad things. I confess before God, get back to being good, carry on with life. Okay? That's a sort of a pattern of behavior. The Bible starts off like this. The inclination of man's heart is evil all the time. Oh, that's not very nice. Even in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And even Paul himself, okay, because you could say, well, there's Old Testament scriptures and we're now in the New Testament and all that sort of stuff, as people do have a tendency to say. Romans, he says in Romans 7 verse 18, Paul is saying this, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And what Paul is trying to show to us is, listen, we all love to think of ourselves as not being that bad. God's assessment, not our assessment, we're not taking it out of us, out of the plane of us. We're taking it to God. God, what's your assessment of us, humanity? You're corrupt. Every single one of you. Your hearts are corrupt. And you see, it's the knowledge of that that is the driving force and the understanding that we need to get inside ourselves because there is something that I perceive in me, and I'm saying about myself, and I'm hoping that I'm not the only one, but if I am, okay, it's time for confession, that's all right. This needs to be dealt with because I want a quality relationship with heaven. I don't want this in and out. I need to know him, you see. And if I need to know that I need him, I need to know why I need him. And the reason I need him, the reason I need God, is because I can do nothing for myself. I can't do anything. Because it's not just I can't do anything, like, oh, I can't do salvation in the way that you can. I can't live right. I think I can. See, this is the problem. I think I can. I'm dealing with what I think. I'm dealing with myself. I'm dealing with my pride. I'm dealing with my arrogance. I'm dealing with those things that are within me. That's in my flesh. And the reason that Jesus came is he said, I can see that you are so corrupt within yourself, you don't even know it. And if you remember last week when we were looking at Romans chapter 1, one of the things that Paul was pointing out was, 
because of the godlessness and wickedness of mankind, there's a sense in which that, because we keep walking in our sinful ways, we're walking in this arrogance of we're not that bad really. You know what? We need God every now and again. I find that God can become my helper, not my saviour. Right? I, I need him to help me. Can you help me now? I've, I've fallen. Can you come and forgive me now? Could you just sort that out? Right, okay, thanks enough. That's enough. That's, that's God as a helper. I need a saviour. Someone who can rescue me from all of the corrupt thinking that's been going on in my mind. I need someone who can save me. I need someone who is with me. And he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lo, I am with you all the way to the end. He's promised and I want that in my life. But you see, Paul in the beginning of this book has been trying to show us, look, you, your godlessness, the way that you're living, this corrupt thinking you've got. And when I say corrupt thinking, this thinking that actually we're not that bad. That's corrupt thinking. Because God says, you're completely messed up. You're completely messed up. The inclination of your hearts is only evil all the time. No, I did think of something nice this morning. I did try to say, you see, we equate it, we evaluate it. We're always putting ourselves up. We're trying to make sure when against other people or even before God that we're not that bad. It's corrupt thinking to think that we're better than we are. And God says, because we keep walking in this way, what it does is it numbs our minds to the truth. So it's almost like we're creating our own veil of covering that causes us not to be able to see him. We are doing that because of the ways that we're walking in. That's what Paul has been trying to express to us. That's where he's been trying to get to. So that when he, he comes to this point of saying, now hang on a second, the scriptures actually say that you lot are pretty well messed up. And of course, in Romans chapter 1, he's been looking at that from the point of view of the Gentiles. When he comes into Romans chapter 2, let me just read to you. So when he comes into Romans chapter 2, he starts to move the statement from looking at the Gentiles to looking at the Jews. Because at the end of chapter 1, it's almost as though the Jewish people who are reading his letter are thinking like, absolutely, I knew that. Those Gentiles, yeah, that's right, corrupt, absolutely. There's almost like, you know, he's pointing the finger at you lot. That's what you lot are like. And the Jews are taking that up and yes, that's exactly what's right. I think Paul's making some good statements here. Those Gentiles, they're completely corrupt. They're not like us Jews. I mean, gosh, we're ardently following Jesus. We're doing all the right things. And so suddenly Paul comes to this, the beginning of Romans chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself, for you who judge others do the very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Oh my goodness. So Paul really does give an uppercut to the Jews at this point, because they're saying, like, oh, you know, look, we're so good, we're so good, we go to church, we do all the lovely things. And then he comes in, Boosh, you're the same as those. The problem with you is you're now thinking because I do those things, I am better than them and you are not. Why? Because the heart of man is desperately wicked, which is why every one of us needs salvation. And salvation is only found through Jesus Christ. 
That's what he's getting across to us. See, Paul goes on in chapter uh, 2, verses 4 to 5. He says to the Jews, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that in his kindness, can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are stirring up terrible punishment for yourself, for a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, we could say, well, you know, hang on, what sin, you know? Are we talking about? And it's not just like, are they going out stealing? No, they're not stealing. They've got over that. Are they going out getting drunk? No, they're not. They they decided they mustn't do that. So there's several things. Oh, we don't do that. We don't do this. But you see, they walk in arrogance. They walk in pride. They walk in self-ability. It's more about what I can do. Hey, I don't need you, God. I can manage that. That in itself is a sin. When we're denying the fact that he is the one that we need every moment. Our breath The very fact that we breathe in, you haven't even noticed that we were breathing. That's because God has given us breath and he's allowing us to breathe. Our breath is in his hands. Our lives are in his hands. So as I say, this brought me to this point of realizing, wow, our theology, we have a theology that we're living by, but it's not the theology that God wants because the Bible is telling us, yeah, you you are corrupt. Paul actually says, and this is his sort of summary of the position of both the Jews and the Gentiles, which he gives as we move fast forward into Romans chapter 3. See how I did that, Kevin? Chapter 2, straight through. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 12. Paul gives this summary, and he says, as the Scriptures say, listen to this because he's talking to Christians, and he's trying to help people to understand How much they need Jesus. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. It is difficult for us to get hold of it. Paul is writing to Christians. Paul is addressing Christians. Paul and this message is for us as Christians. Because the tendency is to say, it's okay for me, I'm a believer, that's it, I don't have to worry. Because there is that sense in which we've got it sorted. Listen, we haven't got anything sorted. All we need to know is that we need Jesus. And how often do I need him? Every moment of every hour, I need you. I need you more. More than yesterday, as the song goes. I need you. That's what I do. I need God. We tend to be so self-sufficient, so proud. We make out that we're holy and righteous and that we're, you know, we're, we're better. I mean, I, I, I read my Bible. I, I pray. You know, and you can say, well, have, have you been up this morning? Have you been praying this morning? Have you been reading your Bible this morning? And anybody here thinking like, no, I haven't. You're suddenly thinking like, well, I say, I have. I have. It's all this pride and arrogance that is rubbish before God. What he sees is the heart of man. It's desperately wicked above all things. There's nothing that we can do. What we need is him. I don't just need help. I need rescuing. I need saving. Andrew Murray, a writer who I do enjoy reading... Uh, in his book, Absolute Surrender, says this. He says, The cause of the weakness of your Christian life is that you want to work it out partly 
and let God help you. And that cannot be. You must come to be utterly helpless to let God work, and God will work gloriously. What he's trying to say, that, that's the picture of, of what I'm talking about. This is what we do. We, we need God's help every now and again, so we, we get him to come and help us. And that's not what God wants. He wants to say, like, you need me. You need me in everything. You need me in all that you're doing. So you need to allow me to come in. Not just help when it's convenient to you, but you need relationship with me so that I can help you overcome, so that I can do the work that I need to do. And you know what? I think to myself, well, we have a sickness, as it were, in us. We have a corruption in us that we can't really seem to throw off. It's almost like an addiction. Our problem is that we're addicted, whether we like it or not, we're addicted to sin and behavior patterns. Now, I was just thinking along these lines. Obviously, we know that some people are not, not only just addicted to sin and behavior patterns, they're addicted to substances like alcohol or drugs. And so there's problems that people have that are through addictions. So I looked up the Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step program because Alcoholics Anonymous bring together those people who have alcohol issues and they present to them a 12-step program which would help them, if people want to get hold of it, will help them get away from that alcohol addiction. And so I thought, well, it's just worth looking at these. And so let me just read to you. I'm not going to read all 12, but I'm just going to read to you the first steps. And incidentally, we know when dealing with one of these people... Well, let's have a look at this first step because that will come up. Alcoholics Anonymous... Anonymous 12-step program to help people who have alcohol problems to get their lives back to stability. Step one is that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. I don't know whether you've had to deal with anybody who's got an alcohol problem, but the first issue is exactly that. You have a problem. No, I don't. No, no, I just like a drink. A social drink. There it is. All this sort of stuff can go. No, you have a problem. It doesn't matter how many people tell us. It's only when we, if we are an alcoholic, actually own the statement, yeah, I have a problem. This is causing issues in my life. I have a problem. And that needs to be dealt with. Unless we could admit that, then we can't move on. But the first step here is interesting, isn't it? The first step that Alcoholics Anonymous say, is that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Second step, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We came to believe that we needed help, and that help has got to come from outside of us. Someone greater than us needs to come and help us so that we can change. Step three. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Now I can go on further with these, but you can see where this is. these steps are just talking about what Paul is talking about. These steps are talking about somebody who's got an alcohol addiction and how to help them get through that addiction. And what steps you've got to take, because it doesn't just happen. There's a process you've got to go through. But we have an addiction, 
Addiction is elevating ourselves, thinking that we're more than we really are, thinking that we have abilities and we don't need God. There's a problem that we have. Now, we're never going to escape that problem unless we realize, first of all, we have a problem. And when we realize that we have a problem, what's the next step that we need to do? We need somebody greater than ourselves to come and help us. And who is that person? That person is God himself. And if we go to him. So the extent, if you like, of how do we deal with our problem, not now we're looking at alcohol, we're looking at just us. How do we deal with our problem? We need to come before God and say, God, we need you. We need you to change us. We need you to help us. We need you to give us understanding. We need you to open up our minds. We need you to help us to be able to see what we're really like from your angle, not from the angle of us on earth. We need you to come in and to help us in our lives. That's what we need. And that's the point that Paul has come to in these letters, or this letter. When he's come as far as Romans 3, verse 20, he's got to this point of painting the picture of the fact that all of humanity is in the same position. All of humanity is in the same position. It's not just whether they're rich or poor and we can understand there's a divide and which side of that divide do we fit on. It's not understanding whether we're educated or uneducated. It's not understanding the color of our skin or what the size of house or size of car or whatever else. It's none of those human adjustments and ways of positioning ourselves, whether we've got a better job or more authority in that job than you. You're a higher manager than I am or you can do. It's none of that. Every, every single one of us, despite what position or place or money we may have in the world, every one of us is a sinner before God. And there's only one person that can help us. And that is God himself. That's the position. So we find ourselves, actually, when you stop and think about it, gosh, don't we evaluate ourselves? What do you mean? Brothers and sisters? Do you have any sort of sibling rivalry? Yeah. Mums and dads, people at work, neighbours, friends, those people who are more well off than you, it's easy for them, they don't have this, they don't understand. All that stuff is our lives because we're constantly complaining and evaluating ourselves against others because the world and the system of the world is like that. God just says this, you're all sinners. And you all need me. That's what he says. But Paul, having got to that point, he now reads like, he goes on to show us this. Romans 3, verse 21 to 25. But now. So having listened to that, but now. God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God 
when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. But now, but now, and we're living in a place where we can receive the but now that God has done for us. How do we get right with God? How, verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can save me. Only. Only Jesus can save me. Not my money, not my works, nothing. Nothing that I can do. Only Jesus can save me. Only Jesus can save you. And that's not, he's just done it once, it's done and dusted. Like, okay, oh yeah, I said a prayer, I've received Jesus, right, okay, that's finished. He's not looking for that, he's looking for relationship with you. Because it's not just we need saving yesterday, we need saving now. And I need saving in the future. It's, like, it's a, an ongoing situation, an ongoing real relationship. Not a, I've done that, so now let me move on and let me live my life back the way that I wanted to. That's just like saying, Jesus, take hold of the steering wheel of my life. That's the prayer you made. Day two, Jesus, get out of this air. I fancy having a drive today. And it's the constant thing that we're dealing with. Hey, who's driving my life? Is it Jesus or is it me? It's supposed to be only Jesus. And that's what we're dealing with. Salvation isn't just past. Salvation is present here and salvation is yet to come. It's a dynamic experience because we're living in a dynamic or we should be living in a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. Yesterday, today and forever. Jesus is the same. And we need to Him all of that time. How? We're made right by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's remember every one of us, I've said this already, but every one of us is in exactly the same position. For verse 23 says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's standards. It's not a case of I'm better than you or anything. Listen, no. We have different positions, different functions, different things that we need to accomplish here upon the earth. Yes, that's true. So different people have different jobs. They get different rates of pay. They're doing all sorts of different things. That is society. And God knows that and he's appointed that. Our job is not to complain about it, but to work with him so that we fulfill his purposes through our lives in what he has given to us. This is again, God, we need you because my head is full of, why haven't I got this? Why am I struggling with that? You don't understand. He does understand. He knows because he said he's going to be with you. I don't understand. And we don't understand the situations. And suddenly, if, if why was God, I'd say yes to you know, all of these. Well, I'd make a mess of things. I'm not God. Only he is God, and only he knows. But every one of us starts in the same position. And the only way any one of us can be saved is through God's help alone. Verse 24, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight, he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. It's only through God. So let me just quickly go through this last three verses. Paul explains in Romans 3, verse 23 to 25, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, through the shedding of his blood. Now, that's great news, but it's an awful lot of words. 
And it's a lot of words that say, okay, that's the sort of thing you read it and you say, okay, I've got through that, now let's what's next. Hopefully there's going to be something that I might be able to understand a little bit more. So I'm just going to say a few things about this section. We have all sinned, we understand that. We are all justified, Paul says. We're all justified. Justification is legal language. I am justified means this, I am given right standing before God. Jesus gives me the right standing that I need. He who was a perfect human being died on our behalf on the cross, thereby satisfying God's standard of justice as far as our sin was concerned. And therefore our sin was paid for by what Jesus did on the cross. Our deficiencies before God, if you like, were fully made up by what Jesus has done for us. We are justified. So these simple words, or these complex words, I should say, probably, in these simple statements, no, they're not even simple statements that Paul makes, they carry a huge amount of information. And that's why people love to unpack this. But for us here, what we need to know is, wow, believing in Jesus, and don't forget, it's not just yesterday. It's today and tomorrow we need this. Believing in Jesus gives me right standing before God. God is not condemning I mess up regularly, but Jesus is for me abundantly. That's the truth. And as far as he is concerned, he says, okay, John, I see that. (laughs) But thankfully, you are justified. I, through my son, have given you right standing. I'm satisfied with what Jesus has done on your behalf. Justification. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul also goes on to mention the word redemption. And redemption is the language of a slave market. It refers to the freeing of a slave through the paying of a ransom. And you know what? When Paul wrote this letter, probably about a third of Rome, in other words, those people who a lot of people were receiving it, were slaves. That was their job. Many of them have been captured by Roman soldiers in other countries and brought back to Rome. And a slave is like... a it's a human machine. You know, like these days, oh, I've got an automatic, I haven't personally, but I've seen them, just in case you thought that, an automatic mower that mows my lawn. You know, you, you program it, and this thing just goes up and down your lawn, and it cuts it, and you don't have to worry about cutting your lawn. It's done by machine. Or you can get a slave, a human machine. That's what the slaves are. So in Roman times, you've got slaves, they're going to do this, do that, they just sort your life out for you. They're slaves. That's what they were like. And you know what? If you were going to be a slave, you went into the slave market. You're captured. You're taken into the slave market. There's a price on your head. So if I'm a slave, there's a price on my head. If you want me, and I'm not necessarily the best human machine, okay. But if you wanted me, there's a price on my head. And okay, okay, I'll have that one. Okay, how many denarii is that? There's a price on my head. What has happened is that Jesus has come and paid the price for me to own me as his slave. And he's done the same for you. Throughout this, although we haven't even mentioned it, is an incredible love of God that he is so for us. We can't believe it. It's it's difficult to understand that all through this, all this messing up, all this bad behavior, all this foolishness, all this stubbornness, all this arrogance, all this pride that we're showing in our lives, Jesus loves us. And he is for us. And he shows it because he's come to redeem us. 
and to save us. And the third thing I'm going to pick up is sacrifice. In those scriptures, it says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Sacrifice, we know that sacrifices took place at the temple in Jerusalem. There were sacrifices that were made daily. There were sacrifices that were done only once a year. Once a year on the day of atonement, the day of making people of Israel right before God, the high priest would go in behind the inner curtain. He would find there the Ark of the Covenant and he would sprinkle blood at the top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's called the mercy seat. Now that word in Hebrew, translated into Greek, is the word that Paul is using for this word atonement. And so what he's trying to say to the Romans as he's writing this, he's giving them an understanding. Hey, do you remember, you Hebrews, you remember how important that blood that was spilt just once a year in the inner place, in that place on the ark, right before God, to make you right? You know that? The blood of Jesus is more powerful than that. That's what he's saying. That sacrifice of Jesus was so powerful. It cleanses you from your sin. It makes you right before God. It makes you at one with him. Atonement. You are completely made right. Your guilt is taken away. This is what Jesus has done for us. But please, it's, this is what Jesus has done for us is what we tend to leave it. This is what Jesus is doing for us. And this is what he is going to do tomorrow for us. It's, we're in a, a life with Jesus. Or if we're not, we're coming right back to the beginning and we're saying, oh, because of our godlessness and our wickedness, we are denying the truth. And that leads us into corruption where the truth gets covered over and we can't see God. We need him. And we want to come back to him because he is all that we need. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bromley Town Church. You are always welcome to visit us on a Sunday morning or join us again for more messages here online. You can also stay connected with us at www.bromleytownchurch.com.